Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Galatians chapter 3. We are reading verses 1 through 14 this morning. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one's who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we do give thanks, and we gather around a difficult passage, an argument your apostle makes to his people who are struggling. And Lord, we ask that by your Spirit, you would give us understanding, and that you would illumine our own hearts, and that we know how to apply this, and to bring it into life, and in our personal lives, and in our community. Help us, God, and speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. Some of you have probably heard the story, but one of my sons asked me whether I would share a Colson family classic this week. In the seventh grade, I was transitioned from the county school to the city schools. Just a public service announcement for the superintendent of the Pitt County Schools. That was cruel and unusual in the seventh grade. I lived inside the city limits, but for some reason I had been sent to the county schools for my entire life. Seventh grade, I show up in a new school with a few others, and it was baseball season, and in my hometown of Greenville, North Carolina, baseball was king. And so if you were going to be anybody, you had to play baseball. I was a redneck who had gone to the county schools, and so I needed to prove myself here. Tryouts were difficult that year because actually the class ahead of us was loaded with talent. Several people went on to play and they won the state championship and some other things. And so as a seventh grader, I was trying to just earn one little spot on the team. And I had an incredible tryout. It was unfortunate because that was the denouement of my baseball career. It was the climax. Everything happened, I think, in those few short weeks. I was trying out for left field, and when it came my turn to shag flies and make my throws and to hit, it was just fantastic. 
I was not as big and as strong as, as everybody else on the team, but I was playing way above my level. I couldn't quite believe it. I had kind of tickled myself with some of the catches I was making. <laughs> and then it came to the day, and you may remember it, when they would provide the cut list. The names would just be listed off. And it wasn't always in alphabetical order, and it was posted on the coach's office, on his office window. And so I, with everybody else, went to the office window and saw that I had made it. I had made the team. I was so excited. I was down on the bottom of the list, but nonetheless, I had made the team. And then after practice, the coach said, there's one catch. Congratulations. You've all made the team, but one catch. The catch is that there are three alternates and there's one uniform left. It was the most discouraging moment of my entire life up to that point because I knew what that meant. I was on the bottom of the list, and so I was one of the alternates. And he said, we're going to have two more weeks where those three get the chance to prove themselves. And I looked around, and I knew the other two. One of them had no shot at all, but one of them was James Ebron. He was bigger and stronger than me. He had a better arm, but I could catch a fly ball, and he couldn't. And I was thinking, this is not fair. James Ebern had a terrible tryout. I proved myself I was so much better than him. He couldn't hold a candle to me right then. And I got in the car after practice. My dad was driving me home, and I just exploded. I just vomited up all of this emotion about how unfair it was. And it was like all the angst of the seventh grade just exploded onto Butch Colson. <laughs> I was so upset. And my dad looked at me with his profound wisdom, and he said, well, what are you going to do? Quit? <laughs> and so I then responded, as you can imagine, just docilely. I exploded back on him. And then my dad began telling me stories. He told me stories from his own childhood where he had faced setbacks and encountered difficulties and how through those he had learned so much and had developed character and that one of the things that he had learned was never to quit. And my dad took me into a history of his own life and even people who had gone before him in our family telling me a story that was to imprint a certain kind of character and certain virtues into my life. And so you may ask, well, why was he telling you history and stories? Well, that histories and stories were loaded, and they were loaded in a specific direction, that he was trying to teach me certain things, that he wanted me to inhabit a certain character. And so the stories were to imprint certain values on me. And friends, this is somewhat what is going on in this letter to the Galatians, a church that is being challenged, a church that is under fire, that they are facing a situation that they didn't know quite how to deal with. But Paul had come and evangelized them, and there were Jews and Gentiles together fellowshipping around the gospel with one another. And then certain missionaries came. It says men from James in chapter 1. We know that these men had Pharisaic backgrounds, and they came teaching this young Galatian church after Paul had left, and they said that circumcision and observing the Jewish Torah, the Jewish law, was necessary for full conversion. 
that if you really wanted to be counted a son of Abraham amongst the people of God, then you had to believe in Jesus and you had to submit yourself to the Jewish law. And Paul, in response to that, in our passage, gives a history lesson. And some of you may think, well, why would he do that? Why would he give a history lesson when they're facing a crisis? And he gives a history lesson because he's telling a story to imprint certain values on them, that they understand the history and the story of what God is doing in the world, and that that then give shape to who they are. And so Paul takes them into the history of the ways and the will of God and working out salvation in his world. And what we see is that this story still shapes us today. It sets out the identity and the character of the church that we are to inhabit, the way that we are supposed to live. And so specifically this morning, in this very challenging passage, we'll see that there are four things that are to shape our own character, our self-understanding, how we are to live in the here and now. And you'll need to bear with me. Over the next few weeks, we will do some of the most difficult and rigorous reading of the Bible that we've done in quite some time. These are challenging passages. But these four things, I think, will be plain to us. Four things that are to shape our self-understanding. First one is this. There is an old story that we must understand. You find this in the second half of the passage in verses 7 through 14. Paul begins in verses 1 through 6 with a series of questions, rhetorical questions, where he's placing the burden on the Galatians, where he's attempting to work with them and soften them up. And then in verses 7 through 14, he takes the church back into the history of God's dealings and God's workings. You saw that in our psalm lesson, we were reading of Abraham, because Abraham is all over this passage in verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And you find, once again, in verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Back in verse 6, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so what becomes clear is Paul is drawing on some history, something prior that has happened, some event in the past, and he's calling us into it. And he's telling us that history, not as a boring lesson. He's telling us that history in order that we understand what our character and what our place in the story actually is. And so it's helpful for us to turn back to Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15, two chapters in which this story of Abraham gets kicked off. But God comes to this man named Abram in chapter 12 and calls him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and promises him three things, land, blessing, and descendants. And God says that Abraham's descendants were to be as many as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. This is what God says in Genesis 15. Of course, the problem for Abraham was that he had no heirs. But he believed God, and he trusted God, and he followed God. And God then announces that in him, through him, and his descendants, all the nations of the earth were to be blessed. And Paul quotes this specifically in verse 8. In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. 
This was going to be God's means for delivering salvation to the nations. It was to come through Abraham and his family that was to grow great. And so it is this old story that Paul says now that Jesus has brought to a climax and fulfillment. In fact, if you separate Jesus from the Abraham story, you're never really going to understand it. That Jesus clarifies what's going on back here, but Jesus also doesn't exist without what went on back here. He brings it to fulfillment. He clarifies it. He draws it to its climax. The death and resurrection of Jesus finishes the story. And so Paul draws us back into the old story in order to explain now what God is doing through the death and resurrection of Jesus. There are two primary corruptions, though, the way this gets told in the modern church. The first of those is what we have labeled dispensationalism, where the old story is considered to exist in something like silos, and there are ways that God was dealing with his people then, and then in another period he was dealing with them this way, and then in another period he was dealing with them this way, and then Jesus, this is how God's now dealing with his people. And so the Old Testament was chopped up and torn apart in God bringing salvation through different means during different seasons of time. It's not the way Paul tells the story at all. He says that as an unfolding narrative that's building and growing and finally being fulfilled in Jesus, that Jesus fulfills the promises that were originally made to Abraham and that were carried on through Moses, and the story is complete. One other corruption of this, though, is what you could call Marcionite readings of the Bible. And that is where the Old Testament is seen as one narrative and the New Testament is seen as another. That there's a works principle of salvation in the Old Testament that reveals a paltry God, one who's poor and feeble. But then when you get to the New Testament, you're really dealing with God, a God of love and forgiveness. And so faith over here and works over here, and you have two different ways of reading the Bible. And this, too, is a corruption, that it doesn't capture it. That Paul is saying that Jesus is the continuation of the salvation that God was promising through Abraham, and he fulfills it. And the blessing that was promised to all the nations has now been unfolded in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And friends, the point is, is that we, in being disciples of Jesus, have to have a mind towards history. And it's not just that you become intellectually curious about the faith, but to really understand our faith and the deep commitments of God to his world and to your own salvation requires that you understand how it has unfolded, that you have to get inside of this to understand it, that you have to get inside of its rhythms and how the story works. And many people will say, well, Chuck, I'm just not a theologian. And so I just can't really understand it. I was talking with a friend recently, and we were discussing our children's capacity to understand and interpret multi-layered narratives. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say a multi-layered narrative? Think no further than The Lord of the Rings. It's a wonderful book, unfolding over three books. It's massive in scope, telling a history and a story that twists and turns and has all kinds of different figures and characters. And do you know what is true about my sons? And they're not special in this. They're just like every other kid who reads it. What happens to them? 
They get caught up in it. They get lost in it. And they understand it. And friends, I think so often we lower our expectations for ourselves when it comes to dealing with the Bible. If my children can do that with a multi-layered narrative, like the Lord of the Rings, then I can also expect that they can do that with the Bible, that the great story of creation and fall and the redemptive plan of God unfolding through Abraham and being fulfilled in Jesus, that my children can understand that. And friends, if our children can understand that, the great purposes of God, then we can understand it as well. And so it's a request not to dumb down your faith, but rather to get rigorous about it and find out what you need. Even if you've been around this for a long time and you say, well, I've never heard that, get to know it. If you're new to the faith, get to know it. It's a long, patient process. It takes a lot of time, but it's well worth the journey. That God invites us into the history of what he's doing in order to imprint a certain character upon us. It's not too complicated. It'll give you a framework for understanding everything that happens cover to cover in the Bible. But there is that old story that shapes us, and we need to appreciate it. Now, the second thing that's going on here, though, that's going to shape us and imprint us, is that there is a new act inside of the old unfolding story. You find this particularly in verses 10 through 13, if you turn your attention there. Paul argues, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. It's a very technical argument, but to simplify it for you. The Jewish Christians who came and corrupted the Galatian congregation were saying that these Gentile converts needed to follow the law. They needed to become Jewish in order to be fully converted. And they were pulling from passages in the Old Testament, and they were well-intentioned in every way, where they believed that after the time of the Messiah, there would be an intensified experience of the law, that the law was to be written on their hearts, and so, of course, these Gentiles needed to be observing it and keeping it. That was the argument that a Pharisaic Christian would have made. But Paul says, no, you've misunderstood the story. That yes, the law is holy and righteous and good, he affirms in Romans chapter 7. That the law is a gift from God, but it was a gift from God as a tutor, he will say in Galatians 3. It was a tutor that was for a certain time, and that tutor was to lead them to full manhood. It was to lead to adulthood, and that that has already drawn to its completion in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so to go back to observe the law was to regress. Many of you have had to travel 295, undoubtedly, this past week. And when something goes wrong on 295 right now, it's a disaster. 
it blocks up absolutely every part of our great city. And there is nowhere that you can get or go, and there's no way to avoid it. It can take you 45 minutes to take a five-minute trip. And when you're on 295, you see that it's the construction, that they are widening the lanes. They're adding SunPass lanes and local traffic lanes, and you can see in the future that it's going to be great that it's going to be very nice for traveling around the city and perhaps the little cluster jam that, that happens at Bay Meadows will no longer happen. You know, that we'll all have hope for clear travel. But there are traffic jams all the time right now. Construction equipment, everything going on, there's dirt on the sides. And friends, what Paul is arguing with these Jewish Christians is he's saying, look, to go back to the law is to regress. It would be like going back to the construction phase of 295. Can you imagine that in two years, once everything is completed and fitted out and travel is so much smoother to say, no, 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 we want to go back to the bottleneck. We want to go back to the traffic jam. Take us back to those days. Paul is making the argument that the law has already been fulfilled, that it's achieved its purpose, and that now it has been morphed and transformed and changed through Christ. And that's no longer binding in the way that it was in the old covenant. That it's been fulfilled. And this is what he's arguing when he says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You see, the law was given through Moses to the people of God that they would be a blessing to the nations. That they carry forward that Abrahamic promise to be a blessing to all peoples. But did the Jewish nation, did the Israelites do well with it? No, they did just what we would have done. And what the law did was intensify their experience of sin. And sin became more manifest and more corrupt as the people were held under its weight. And it was a terrible experience. And then ultimately, the curse of the law, which was promised in the book of Deuteronomy, if the people just continued in their corruption, was brought upon the nation. And people ask, well, why did God do that? Why did he give them a law? And then it just further revealed their corruption. You have to remember that when God made the promise to Abraham, he was promising to bring salvation to the nations. And human corruption was always the issue, and human sin. And so, yes, Israel's sin is magnified under the law, but then God becomes a Jew, and he goes under the curse of the law himself. God is focusing the problem of sin step by step, and then he receives it in his body as a person, as a man, and he defeats it. And this is the argument that Paul is going to make through the book of Galatians, is this is how God is now dealing with sin. And so the time of the law has passed, that that has been broken, that it has been fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus bears the weight of the curse for us. All of our sinning, all of our law-breaking is broken in half when Jesus goes down into death, but he was the righteous one, and he has been raised. And now when you place your faith in him, you can be made right with God as well. You share in his great victory, the one who broke the curse of the law on your behalf. And so there's that new act 
And that old story must be interpreted in light of that new act. And Paul is arguing that that history, all of that history lesson, is to be imprinted upon you, is to imprint upon you a very specific and new character. Now the third piece to this, and hang with me, is that there is now an ongoing necessity. And this is one of the things that Paul is laboring to make clear. If you follow with me in verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And then in verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Once again in verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Quoting from the Old Testament, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And then once again in verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That there is an ongoing necessity in this unfolding story. And it's the same necessity that's always been there. It is faith. Faith in the promise of God. Faith in the covenantal promises of God. Faith ultimately in the faithful one, Jesus Christ, who goes down into death, who is the new covenant on our behalf, who bears our sins and brings God's promises to their final manifest and full revelation. And friends, this is the ongoing necessity. Faith in Jesus. Abraham wasn't saved by his works. Nor was anyone in the Old Testament saved by their works. Paul asserts that anyone who's under the law is under a curse. It's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. That was never the law's intent. It was to manage the people's lives, to direct them in sanctification, not to justify them. That faith was necessary for Abraham. It was necessary for the children of Abraham throughout the Old Testament. And faith is necessary today. And it's the one necessity. You don't add your works on top of it in order to be right with God. That's not the way we stand with him. And friends, it's helpful for us to consider Abraham and his faith. God does promise him in Genesis 15 that he would have many descendants, that they would be as many as the sands on the seashore and many as the skies and the heavens. And it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul quotes that in verse 6 of chapter 3. Abraham trusted that God was going to make good on what he said because the problem for Abraham was that he had no heir. And so how was God going to give him descendants that were as many as the stars in the heaven? Do you see the tension? Do you see why Abraham had plenty of reasons not to believe? But what was Abraham's response? He believed God. He trusted God. In Genesis 15, God then welcomes Abraham into what was called a covenant-cutting ceremony. Certain animals would be dismembered in one of these ceremonies. We have many examples of this from the political world of that day. And when a covenant was to be made, when promises were to be sworn, animals would be dismembered and spread across a path. 
And then as you took your vows as the servant, you would read your vows to your great king and lord, and you would pass through the animal pieces. They would be arrayed around you. And what you were saying is that if I break these vows, may this happen to me. Pleasant. (laughs) May I be dismembered if I break my covenantal vows and oaths. Genesis 15 tells us that Abraham fell into a sleep, a nightmare. You can understand why. He was scared to death. He believed this God was going to make good on his word, but oh my goodness, he had just sworn his loyalty to this God. He could be dismembered if he breaks that loyalty. And then, though, Abraham sees a vision. And there is a cauldron passing through the animal pieces that is representative and symbolic of God himself. That God passes through the dismembered animal pieces and he swears on his own life that he will keep his promise, that he will make good on what he has said. And friends, that is the assurance that we have in faith and that assurance that we ultimately have that God reveals in Jesus that those promises to Abraham were fulfilled because Paul will tell us that Abraham's seed was ultimately Jesus, that he was the point of all of that promise, the Redeemer to come, that he was the seed who came and he delivers the nations. God made good. He swore against his own life that he was going to do so. And friends, we are to lock up our faith and our trust like Abraham did But we have a sure and better word now, the author to Hebrews tells us, because we have the climax of the whole story. And so we put our faith in Jesus. He's the deliverer. He's the one who comes to redeem the nations. That's the ongoing necessity. And the final piece to this, though, is not only is there an ongoing necessity, but there is a new reality now unfolding around us. One of the things that you'll note in this passage is the number of times that faith comes up, Abraham comes up, and then the Holy Spirit. And whenever you start reading about the Holy Spirit in a Presbyterian church, people get uncomfortable. Francis Schaeffer, one of my intellectual mentors, once asked a Bible study group what would happen to their Bibles. Would they notice it if the Holy Spirit were edited from it? You actually would have a good deal of your Bible missing. And what we find here is that Holy Spirit is all over the passage. Follow with me in verse 2, where Paul asks his question. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did the Spirit enter into your life because of the works you did according to the law, or did the Spirit come in because of hearing with faith? And then in verse 3, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then once again in 14, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. This is one of the things when we get inside of the Abraham story that's so crucial to understand and to deal with. 
is that part of the Jewish promise and the great expectation was that when God brought the new covenant, that the Spirit was going to come and was going to write the law of God upon the hearts of the people. And do you understand what Paul is saying has now happened? This is why the law was no longer necessary, because the law had been internalized and written on the hearts of the new covenant people, that this was the Holy Spirit's job and function, and that now what the law could not do, Christ by His Spirit was doing in bearing the fruits of the Spirit through us. And Paul is arguing that this new reality is manifest, and it's not because you were keeping the law but rather it's because of hearing through faith. The hearing of faith, listening to the gospel, and the Spirit entering our lives and new creation breaking forth in our old, stale, dead hearts. We who were bound up under the curse of the law, now being freed. This is what Paul is saying is that that new creation, that work of the Spirit, like the old creation where God breathed everything into existence, God was now recreating us. This is the story being told, that all those in Christ Jesus are new creation. And so all the history, friends, it's all here in order to imprint a certain story, a certain character, And that's all summed up in verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That through Christ, God was fulfilling that old plan, that old promise. The promise that he made and swore himself to when he passed through the dismembered animals. That that has all been fulfilled. And God is now creating one new family where Jew and Gentile and all distinctions that we can conjure up, any social class, any race, all the things that we like to split ourselves up around no longer hold, they no longer stand, that the qualification for being in this community and standing in it and belonging to it is faith in Jesus. Paul takes you into the history in order to imprint the character that it is faith and faith alone by which we stand. That's what he wants us to see. That's what he wants us to grasp. That's what he wants to drive home and for us to understand. He wants us to know that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That we died to the law through the law. This is your God. He keeps his word. Put your trust in him. Let's pray. Father, as we work through difficult material, we know that you have revealed yourself in this way. And Lord, we ask that you would give us understanding and that we see that at all the center of your purposes lies Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. And may our lives be grounded in that. Give us the courage and the determination to know your great plan as it unfolds through the scriptures. And may we see Jesus as the great capstone of that, bringing it all to fulfillment and climax. And may we glory in him. And may we rejoice in him and celebrate in him. And may we be that one new family, that family of Abraham. 
identified by faith and nothing else. Help us to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.